The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 16. This is our text verse for this evening, 1 Timothy 4, verse number 16. And the Apostle Paul says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Our concern is about doctrine, specifically it is the doctrine, as Paul says in this verse, or Jude would describe that as the faith, which is the complete body of truth that's known as Christianity. Paul said to Timothy, pay attention to the doctrine. And then the author of Hebrews said, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Well, the things that we have heard refers to the articles of the Christian faith that are found in the gospel of Christ. Our subject is biblical discernment, and we must sift through the many things that preachers preach, teachers teach about the scriptures, and decide, are they telling the truth? Should we believe what they have to say? The scripture says that there are many false prophets in the world, there are many deceivers, Uh, It says that Satan is able to change himself into an angel of light. There are just so many different interpretations of the Scripture out there, and everybody claims to be right. But there's one truth. There is no such thing as varieties of the truth. And it's the departure from the truth that's given us the various denominations that we have in the world today. And so all of them claim that they are the true churches of Christ. And I want to point out first that, according to the Scriptures, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church upholds truth. And so if you have so many churches that are claiming that they're preaching the truth, and yet they have significant differences in what they teach, then that shows you that we have a a big task of digging down to find out if all of these people that claim to teach truth are, are defenders of the faith, or are they actually pretenders to the faith. False prophets, false churches, that is a uh, frequent subject in the New Testament. And so the place to start is with the discernment of truth, and that would be to discern truth in the church, because the church is supposed to uphold the truth. So how do we determine, among so many that say that they preach the truth, how do we find the identity of the true church? Now, in our last lesson, I tried to show you logically that according to Christ's promise in Matthew 1618, that there is a continuing church that has the same New Testament doctrine since the first century. And that church could not have become apostate. According to Christ's promise, that cannot happen. It cannot happen that there is not a true church anywhere to be found. Now, somewhere in in every time, there has been a church that has remained faithful to the teachings of Scripture. Because of persecution, sometimes that church was hard to find. Sometimes it had to go uh, underground, it was deeply oppressed, scattered, but that church has never gone, never been gone. The truth remained preserved, and that truth is still a 
available to us today. Now, the historical evidence is, shows that the church is not the one that most people assume that it is, nor is the true church connected to that church in any way. Now, the widely accepted belief is that the Roman Catholic Church is the successor to the apostles, and um, originally that was the true church of God. But the Roman church is, is too late to be the true church. It never was a true church. And the churches that are born out of Roman Catholicism could not be the true church. Uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, rather, is the mother of many harlot daughters. And churches that are born from her, uh, from an apostate church, could not be true churches. And they might be better than their mother. And I think in many, many cases they certainly are, because they've given up many of the worst errors that you find in Catholicism. They have some truth. They have corrected some of the errors. They may even teach the true way of salvation. But you need more to be the same church that Christ started. They have similarities to us. I have many things that are, some of them have many things that are in common with us, and we certainly do appreciate that. Uh, I uh, regularly use commentaries from some of these churches, from Protestant churches. I, I greatly admire them in, in, in many ways, but they don't have any valid claim to be the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's obvious that these churches uh, uh, think that they're right, they believe many of the New Testament doctrines. And as I said, many of them hold core fundamental doctrines of the faith that we hold. Uh, many of them believe in justification by faith alone. They're saved people that are in their numbers. But salvation alone does not make them a true church. Now the problem is that they hold many doctrines that prevent them from constituting a true church. But this important point does need to be made. Now, I want to make sure everybody in here knows this and don't mistake this. That if you believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, if you believe salvation is by God's grace alone, then you are saved and you are a kingdom or a Christian and you are in the kingdom of God. A person who believes that is going to heaven because he is a citizen of God's kingdom. But that is not the same as being in the true church. Every, every uh, church member is in the kingdom of God. But not every person who is in the kingdom of God is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two different things. Now, the kingdom and the church are not the same thing. And that's evident because when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to build my church. And the kingdom was already here. The kingdom was here when Jesus came. The kingdom has always been here. And yet the church hadn't, hadn't begun until Christ came. John the Baptist preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it wasn't until later that Jesus began the church. It wasn't until later that Paul revealed the mystery of the church that was hidden from Old Testament prophets like John the Baptist. And one of the errors that we find in the modern church is the belief that the church and the kingdom are synonymous. They are not the same. The kingdom was here before the church came, and one of these days the church is going to go away, and the kingdom will still be here. So they're not the same thing, but the church is God's plan to increase the kingdom at this present time. Now, we maintain that Christ never would have had a church that's in uh, a perpetual disarray like the many denominations are today because that would hurt the kingdom. So there is one true church that has stayed close to the doctrines that were taught by Jesus and the apostles, and that church is still here. And that church is not a perfect church. And the reason that it isn't is because 
there are lo- uh, not lost people, but there are, are fallible human beings that are in this church. One of these days, uh, the Lord is going to present that church as the bride that's without spot and wrinkle. Perfect. But that church is not perfect right now because there are humans that are in it. And uh, there are variations of opinions on scriptures that, that we have. But despite all those variations, there is one group of people that has remained remarkably consistent for centuries, and those people are the Baptists. Now, historians who are not Baptists are agreed that in every age since Christ, there have been people that have held to the same beliefs about Christ, have held on to the same basic interpretations of the doctrines of the faith. Even Roman Catholic historians agree that Baptists have been a thorn in their side since the day that they began. We were here, and we were opposing them from the very beginning, and they acknowledged that. So long before there was a Protestant Reformation, Baptists were teaching some of the Reformation doctrines, particularly the ones about soteriology. And we stuck through those through those uh, years of vigorous persecution. We disagree with the Protestant ecclesiology. We have to disagree with that because... Theirs is an altered ecclesiology to accommodate a, a beginning, uh, a birth from a, from a corrupt mother. Persecution could not stamp us out, whether it came from Catholics, Protestants, or, or other groups from paganism. The church cannot be stopped because Christ made that promise. The church will not fail. The gates of hell are never going to prevail against it. So that's where we are in the beginning of this study. We're, we're taking a look at the doctrinal distinctions of Baptists. What is it that makes us what we are? What do we teach that shows that we are true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, let me repeat this from last week. The claim that we are the true church is not an arrogant claim. No one complains when Roman Catholicism says that they are the true church. No one says that the Pope is arrogant because he says that the Catholic Church is the true church. I mean, true or not, that ought to be the belief of every church. That my church is the true church. I mean, why would you want to join a church that doesn't have a claim to be the true church? Well, I wouldn't want to. What would be the point of that? But as they say, the proof is in the pudding. And our pudding is the Word of God. And so we go there and we find our doctrines. And if we match what is found in the Word of God, then our claim is valid to be the true church. Now, in order to explain and to explore why that we believe that the Baptist church is the same as the one that started by Christ, that our doctrine is the same, we're using the Baptist acrostic. Now, that's not spelled out in 1 Timothy 4.16. You don't find it in Jude, verse number 3. It is simply a, a a mnemonic that we use to emphasize what we believe. Now, we start then with the letter B. The letter B, that's the B in Baptist, and the B stands for biblical authority. Baptists believe that the Bible alone is the source of our authority. Or better said, we we would say that the Word of God is from God, and God is the authority. And so we recognize that the Scriptures are accurate, that they are the same as God speaking to us, which makes the Scripture our authority. The Bible gives authority to the church, not vice versa. And so a church cannot change what's written in the Word of God. We don't have any authority to change any doctrine, any scripture in the Bible. I mean, we must stick strictly to what the Word of God says. But we know that the Bible is usurped by false authorities. 
That's what popes do when they impose sacraments and rituals and penance and purgatory or anything else that doesn't have a scriptural foundation. But then we also understand that that authority can be usurped by Baptists. Whenever a Baptist elevates his preferences and his traditions above the articles of the faith or to become articles of the faith, then we have usurped the authority of the Scripture. So we have to be careful about this and those kinds of things, that we don't become a Revelation 2 or a Revelation 3 church that's just waiting for the impending uh, judgment of God. So the Bible is our only authority. Last time we spent all of our time there in the letter B, but I would like to add just a little bit more information before we move on to the next letter. I was doing some studying on the B in this acrostic when I came across this statement that said, the King James Bible is the Bible of Baptist. Now, the implication of that statement was that if a Baptist church doesn't use the King James, then it really can't be a distinctively Baptist church. Oh, is that true? Is it true? Well, you know how much that I love the King James, uh, but does using a certain translation of the Scripture determine whether a church is a true church? Now, let's reason that out for just a moment. The person who wrote this statement also said this, the King James is the, is, uh, is the Bible Baptists have historically used. That's an amazing statement for somebody who believes in the antiquity of the, of the Baptist church. When this country was first settled, um, most Baptists did not speak or read English. Now, what I mean by that is that the English Baptists that came to this country were not the only Baptists that there were. In fact, there were Baptists all over the, the known world at that time. There were churches of the living God everywhere. And so the Baptists that came to America uh, are just a few of the Baptists that were, that were in the world. The Baptists that came over on the Mayflower from England and Holland were now not the majority of Baptists. Now, secondly, when the King James was first published, it was rejected by Baptists. The old Baptists were Puritans, and the English Puritans preferred to hold on to the Geneva Bible. That was the Bible that they loved. And the Bible that was brought to this country was not the King James Bible. It was the Geneva Bible, even though the King James had been published about 10 years before, around 10 years before the, the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony was settled. Now, among the pilgrims, there was a small number of Baptists, which became the seed of the true church in this country. They didn't use the King James. Now, eventually, the, the King James gained wider acceptance, and that was good. We believe it was good. But the use of the King James couldn't have determined whether it was a true church. They didn't use the King James. Now, the King James was, was just vigorously uh, promoted by the Church of England. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. That just happens to be the history of it. And now we, we do agree that it's the best translation to be used by English-speaking people. But we reject the claim that to be a Baptist, you have to use the King James Version. Now, you also have to watch out for this. A, a very subtle way of teaching that erroneous doctrine is to never say King James Version. Many of these people say King James Bible because they believe that in some way that the King James Bible is inspired. It's an inspired translation and not a version of Scripture. Well, if that's true, then we have to ask, well, did, did the Holy Spirit inspire the name of it? I mean, I, I thought that it was the God's Bible, not King James the first Bible. So 
We, we, we got to be careful to look out for those kinds of things. And quite frankly, I would, with great difficulty, uh, I, I would join a church that used anything but the King James because I think there are just too many problems with the other translations. But I would be very careful and suspect of a church that claimed inspiration for a translation and disputed the salvation of people that are saved by using a different translation. Now that sounds kind of strange to us that people would do that, but that actually was a, an area of controversy just a few years ago that some of the independent Baptist churches were rebaptizing people that were saved when a Christian worker was using some other translation of Scripture other than a King James. So their salvation and their baptism was suspect if they did their repeat after me when a Christian worker used some other translation. Now, I hope that you understand this, that that is adding a requirement to salvation that isn't there. A person can be saved without a copy of the Bible even being present. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, I can stand here and I can explain to you the gospel of Jesus Christ in my own words. And you can be saved. Of course, I'd be using the truth that comes from the scriptures, but you can be saved without even having a Bible in the room. That is, if somebody gives you the right gospel of Jesus Christ. So a particular translation cannot make a church. Now, when I first read that statement, I, I thought, well, if I develop an argument about this, am I building a straw man to attack? And I can tear down a straw man. And so I apologize to the author of that article if that's not what he meant, but I do know this, that there are many others that believe that kind of nonsense. That's bad biblical discernment. We, we have to be correct not only about what's in the Bible, but what actually is the Bible. And we don't want to elevate a translation to the level of deity. The King James translators did not claim for the King James Bible what many Baptist preachers claim for it. And they ought to know more about what they produce than we know. So uh, a King James, that's good, but you don't have to have a King James to constitute a church. Well, I'll, I'll leave that part alone now. We're Baptists because we do believe in biblical authority. We will not take the word of the Pope above the word of God, whether that Pope is in Rome or whether he's in northern Santa Rosa. So we'll just stick with this. Thus saith the Lord. If it's not in the word, then it's not Baptist doctrine. Truth is always going to be Bible truth. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Well, next I'd like to look at the letter A. But before I do, let me remind you that what we're talking about is what makes us Baptist, not what makes us Christian. Sometimes those two things overlap, but not always. We're, we're Baptist because of certain distinctions. Some of the things that we talk about are not salvational issues, but all of them are church issues. I mean, a person can be saved in a faraway place and hear the gospel of Christ. He can be saved, but that does not mean that he is a member of the true church. Now, years ago, our church in Kentucky had uh, a very large bus ministry, and over the, the, the windows of each of our big green buses was a red lettering that said, Distinctively Baptist. And we wanted people to know that we, are, we were not a generic church that has no particular definitions of doctrine. We were Distinctively Baptist. And that name said what our church believed. So we want people to know that. Well, let's go on then to the second letter, the letter A. A stands for the autonomy of the local church. Let me make this point before we discuss it. 
If, if you were reading a systematic theology, you would look down the list of doctrines and you could see how that one doctrine logically flows into another. Um, that's, there's a logical progression as you see the subjects that are outlined in a systematic theology. Now, if, unfortunately, in the Baptist acrostic, it's not that way. We have to jump around a little bit to make the letters work the way that we want them to. And so that might leave me repeating uh, some of the information from time to time. But this is really the acrostic. It's helpful for us in, in order that we might uh, see what's different about Baptist. Uh, don't let anybody accuse us of having illogical minds because the order of these doctrines happens to be random. Now, I've mentioned before that there are some Baptists who resist systematic theology. And they say, you can't have a systematic, uh, you can't organize the, the Bible in a systematic way. And so what they're afraid of doing is forcing doctrines into a, into a false system. Well, the opposite side of that argument is that if you teach one doctrine that, that is different or negates or it has a conflict, is not consistent with another doctrine that you teach, then you have a problem. The Bible is not going to contradict itself. It is okay to develop a system out of the Bible. There's no problem to do that if you stick with the Word of God. So God has a system, and God is consistent about it. And a good systematic theology makes sense of Bible doctrine, and it shows how each doctrine works with the others. Nothing prevents theology from being logical, but illogical people. And if you don't believe that, all you need to do is look at the arguments of the Apostle Paul. And you see how many times that he lays down uh, uh, certain postulates as a foundational principles of a doctrine. And then he establishes that principle and he says, because of this, this is true. And he proceeds in a logical fashion. He does that with the doctrine of justification. Also with the doctrine of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, just two of the examples of how he uses logic and systematic theology in order to uh, produce an argument. So this acrostic is not an attempt to be systematic. It's not a logical progression from one doctrine to another. And biblical authority, what I'm trying to say to you, is biblical authority does not naturally flow into a discussion of the autonomy of a local church. But it doesn't have to, not for our purposes. We're just explaining different doctrines of the uh, of Baptists that make us make us what we are. So A stands for the autonomy of the local church. That is a word that simply means that the church is self-governing. The church governs itself. The church doesn't recognize any authority outside of itself other than the headship of Christ. And so this church, this body at 6298 Country Club Drive has no other authority over it. We don't answer to anyone but the Lord himself. Well, how does that make us different? Well, it doesn't make, it di make us different from some churches. Uh, there are others that are also independent. And, uh, but we do believe that it's necessary for proper church government, as far as that's concerned. Now, the Roman Catholic model is different, and it's probably the easiest different model to explain. Usually, you take what a Roman Catholic says, and you do the opposite, and you're going to be right almost every time. I mean, that, that's usually what happens. Now, historically, the polity of a Baptist church is congregational. The local church makes its own decisions. No outsiders tell us what to do. So what happens in this church is a decision of the congregants of this church. 
Now, I don't have time to, for us to do a study of all the different types of church government, but I do think that I need to just very briefly mention them because it's important for us to contrast the difference in what Baptists believe and what others believe about church government. So let's just take a moment here to look at forms of church government. The first one is the prelatical form. That's, that's a church government by prelates. A prelate would be a, a bishop, a, a high church official. It's a government of hierarchy of bishops, and Roman Catholicism is prelatical. Uh, there a ser- there's a series of bishops in descending order from the, from the authority, the highest prelate, which would be the pope, and then that passes down through down to the lowest, uh, lowest of the bishops in the individual congregation. So the Pope is the reigning bishop over this whole conglomerate of about one billion Roman Catholics throughout the world. Now, interestingly, just a few weeks ago, the Patriarch of Moscow, who is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, met with Pope Francis. And that was an historical meeting because that hasn't happened in over a thousand years. And that was uh, back in the 11th century, there was a split between, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Eastern Catholics that went one way, the Western Roman Catholics went the other way, and the Eastern side went against the Pope. They didn't believe in the authority of the Pope. They wouldn't accept that. And rather what they did was to give their allegiance to the patriarch of their own area. Now this is what you have then with the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, the, the, the patriarch of, of that church heads about 100 million Eastern Catholics. But whether you're talking about Eastern or Western, the prelatical form of government is used in those churches. You have one patriarch that is head of all, and then there's a hierarchy, especially in the Western church, that descends to lesser bishops, from the pope to the cardinals to the archbishops, and then whatever else goes behind them, down to the bishop, down to the parish priests, and so on. And each of them has their own domain of authority, but all of them are subject to the pope. That's a prelatical form. The second form is Presbyterian. You don't have to be a Presbyterian to use Presbyterian government. It, it comes from uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. And this is where there's a little variation in the way that they do this. But <clears throat> these are assemblies or synods or presbyteries where a group of people represents the local assemblies of the denomination. And there's variation in, in how that works, but the important part of it is that there is an authority above the local church that can govern the affairs of that church. Even to the point that, in the Presbyterian form, that the assembly can appoint the pastor of the churches. And they're moved around from place to place as that assembly sees fit. That's Presbyterian form. Then the third form is independent. Independent church government is sometimes called congregational because the governing power of the church rests in with the people of that individual congregation. Now, because we're independent does not mean that we're non-cooperative. Churches can cooperate with one another, but none of the churches has authority over another church. Now, let me explain that just a little bit. Technically, churches in the Southern Baptist Convention are independent of each other, but we don't consider them to be independent Baptist. Now, an, an independent, the independent designation is reserved <clears throat> for churches that are not in an organization that's known by one name. The GRBC 
says that they are independent, but by our definition, they're not. They have congregational rule in some of their churches, uh, but they also have a council of men that do various things like constructing a statement of faith that all of the churches in their fellowship have to agree with to be in that fellowship. To me, that stretches the, the limit of independence. Likewise, I wouldn't say that the Baptist Bible Fellowship is strictly independent, although they would probably disagree with me, but that's okay. They don't rule me so I can have my own opinion. And then there are many Baptists that are not a part of a formal association, but they act as if they are. When, um, whenever I meet a pastor of an independent church or a member from an independent church, I always ask them this, who do you run with? And that's because just about everybody, no matter what independent church you're talking about, has a certain group of people that they stick with, they run with, churches that they are, they are tight with. Now, here's what happens with many of those. Perhaps you didn't know this, but there's often tension between these large fundamental Baptist churches about whose pastor is the most influential and which pastor is the voice of fundamentalism in this country. Most people would probably agree that um, for years, Jack Hiles was the, was the head or person for many fundamental Baptists. A church and a pastor had to have the approval of Jack Hiles to have fellowship with that group, with other churches that are in that group. Jerry Falwell, about the same time, also had his group of independents. And so you have this kind of a dichotomy that's going on about who is the leader of the independents even though independents don't actually have a leader. Now, that's why we're called independent. Well, when Hiles died, there was a scramble for who would become the most influential pastor. Who would be the one that would take his place? Would it be his son-in-law? That was uh, Jack Scop, who took over his church, who's no longer there now. But he took over that church. Would he be the one who would be the voice of fundamentalism, or would it be somebody else? I'm not going to mention any other names, but there's a fellow down in Texas that thought that the mantle of fundamentalism should fall on him. Here on the West Coast, there were two pastors that thought that they should be the voice of fundamentalism. So, so here's what happens. The, the pastors of those churches, the ones that want to speak for everybody else, become the de facto head of other churches by virtue of the fact that you have to remain on the good side of them in order to stay in their fellowship. If you want to have fellowship with the brethren in those churches, then you better toe the party line. I mean, you better fall in with the de facto head. And what some people do in our local churches is they go against the pastor of their church because they've been influenced by a pastor of another church. And so uh, the pastor of that church gets into the middle of the affairs of independent churches and influences decisions that are made in that church. Well, they do it under the guise of advice, but woe to you if you don't take the advice. That can be bad for you as far as fellowship is concerned. This actually happened in our church. Fourteen years ago, when I became the pastor, there was an attempt at outside interference in the selection. Now, this church needed to be kept in the fold, and so there was an attempt made to sway the decision. That's water under the bridge, so I'm not going to go into that tonight. But this church chose its own pastor. That's me, and we're indebted to nobody but Christ, and as long as I'm the pastor, we are going to stay that way, and I'm not going to play politics with any of them. We answer to the Lord, not to the Baptist popes, and that's why you call it independent church government. 
Now, stepping back from that just a little, for, for our purposes, we need to define what did Baptists do historically. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention is an 1850s entity, not an AD 100 entity. Cooperation between churches is okay. That's justified when our doctrine is the same. But you look at Southern Baptist churches and their congregations are all over the map. Some to the extent that actually I don't think that many of them qualify to be true churches. Churches are in trouble when the Southern Baptist Convention reported that 40 to 50% of the people in the church did not understand what baptism is for. That's a real problem. And there are many other doctrinal problems. Some of them want to go back to uh, the historical roots of the founders uh, that taught historical Baptist doctrine, while there are others in that group that call them heretics. And so on it goes. And to me, it's just not worth the trouble to deal with that. So what have Baptists done historically? Well, in the beginning, the apostles controlled the churches. The apostolic office was unique because of that special authority that was given by Christ. They were the ones that were to chart the course for what the church would become. Jesus didn't give a lot of instructions uh, to the apostles as far as the church is concerned. And so there were doctrines that had to be developed over time, and the apostles were in charge of developing those doctrines. Now, most of the New Testament epistles were written as instructions for how the church was to operate. Uh, what, when a letter was written to one church, that letter was also good for another church. And those letters were passed around uh, to the different churches for them to read and, and to heed. Now, we find an example of this in Colossians chapter 4, where Paul wrote to that church and said, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, that is, when this Colossian epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, that ye likewise also read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, this Colossian letter then is to be read to other churches. What Paul wrote to them was binding on the others as well. Likewise, when John wrote the Revelation, that was a letter that's to be circulated among the seven churches of Asia. And as that got around, that was to be binding doctrine upon all of those churches. But then you have the death of the apostles. And at that point, the apostolic office ceased. Now you have no more instructions that are given to the church. All of it's been written down. And what's written in the Bible became the rule for the individual churches. And so what happened then was the church reverted to the internal control of the membership. Now what happened is that when you get churches that begin to group together and they come under one bishop, and one bishop is chosen over this group of churches, that's when heresy developed. Control brings corruption. And trying to maintain control brings more corruption. Now, the remarkable thing about the true church at the time was that the true church maintained doctrine, true doctrine, separately. Well, that couldn't be anything but the fulfillment of Christ's promise. The doctrine remained pure, even though the churches were separate. Whereas, it became corrupted when they joined together under a prelate. Now, that's what happens when you when you upset the biblical order. And, and this is why today, across the world, you have many, many independent Baptist churches that are almost identical in doctrine. We still exist under biblical 
authority. So we don't have the right to decide what we teach and practice. We interpret the Bible. We always have to teach the Bible. And here's the thing that keeps us unified, that if we all stick with the Bible, rather than what man says, then we're all going to agree with one another. The Bible is the rule for us. Now, understanding that, then, we can look at biblical examples of the church acting autonomously. We can actually see church government at work in the Scriptures. Now, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 1, and we'll look at an example of this. Um, uh, this is in the appointment of a new apostle to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I'll, I'll start reading at verses 15 and 16. Acts 1, 15 and 16. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Now, from that point, Peter goes on to explain what happened to Judas, that they, they knew that information. Then he took them to the Psalms to show them how that God had ordained that it was necessary to choose someone to take Judas' place. In verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and let his bishopric, or let, his bishopric let another take. Then we move down to two names that are proposed. These are two men that met the requirements of the office of apostleship. Now, I don't have time to finish this entire point tonight, so let's just comment uh, for, for the moment on this particular selection that shows church government at work. It also teaches why that we don't have the apostolic office today, why there is no one who, who meets the qualifications of an apostle. Well, what are those qualifications? We find them here in verses 21 and 22. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John under the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So here are the requirements for the office of apostleship. Number one, he must have accompanied the disciples from the time that Jesus was in his earthly ministry. Now, what that tells us is that there were other men that were present at the time who had not been chosen as apostles, but they were, ex they were uh, uh, peripheral to the apostles, and yet they, hang out, they hung out with them. They were around them. They, they, they went with them where the apostles were going. And so other believers were often in the company of the apostles. Number two, the man chosen must have the baptism of John. All the apostles were baptized by John the Baptist. Number three, it says that he must be a witness of the resurrection of Christ. Now, I think you can see that there's nobody that can meet those requirements. The office was very special, and in this case, the 11 apostles of the church were given the authority to choose another apostle who met those requirements. Now, make sure that you don't miss this in verse number 15, that there is a discussion here, and there is a vote that took place among the 11 and the total of the 120 disciples that are members of the first church. I realize that there are some people who interpret it that this is a decision made by the apostles only, and so they think they want a point. Not really, because the apostles were the, those 11 there 
were the charter members of the first church, which still makes this a church decision. In verses 23 and 26, we see that vote and the choice. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whither of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now there's our first example of the church operating under the authority of Christ and of the apostles, and with the whole church involved in the decision-making process. Now I'm going to close with that example. We're a little bit late now, and We can come back to discuss some more next time, which we will do. But let me throw out something here for you to think about. Have you ever wondered what happened to Justice, the man who lost this vote? Whatever happened to him? Do you think he got mad? you think he left the church because they voted for Matthias instead of him? I seriously doubt that that happened. I don't think they ever would have chosen a man who was looking at himself and thinking what notoriety that would bring to him rather than exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people who believe that justice is actually the same as Barnabas. Some say that he was a brother of James the Less, who was one of the apostles that that was chosen by Christ. We really don't know the answer to that. We don't know what happened to him. Quite frankly, we don't know what happened to Matthias either. And if you look down that list of apostles... We don't know what happened to any of them from a biblical perspective. I mean, information in the Bible except Peter, James, and John. Those are the only ones that we know anything about, what happened to them. So just think about that. This kind of gives us a start on autonomy. Baptist churches have always maintained this form of government that we are are independent. Christ intended that his body, that these individual churches would be a body in their particular location, and they don't have any authority over them except the Lord Jesus Christ. And just remember this, you put them all together, you start to get them into a big group, and the next thing that happens is there's going to be corruption that follows. Doctrine begins to break down when you break the right church order, and that's one of the reasons why we have so many denominations teaching so many different things, is because they broke the order that God gave. So we'll, we'll talk some more about this. Uh, thank the Lord that he's kept us from the power struggles that eventually corrupted denominational churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the study that we have and what makes us as Baptists different from other people. And we, we need to understand this very clearly, that uh, we don't set ourselves up above anybody else. Uh, not others that are Christians, but we thank the Lord that you thank you, Lord, that you've led us into the truth of your word to understand what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is, what that church is supposed to believe, and then tracing that history back. If we believe the promise that you gave, that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, then we can't interrupt the flow of the truth from the first century until now. There has to be a church that maintained that truth. Help us to understand that, Lord, and look for that truth and identify the church by the doctrines of the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.